We should do a little seaweed exchange. I like that idea. Oh my God. I love that idea. (laughs) Coast to coast. Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Hey guys, welcome back to the Water Women Podcast. I'm so excited to share today's episode with Lauren. It is so cool and I guarantee you guys will learn so much about seaweeds and climate change and putting cameras on squids. Yeah, we talk about some weird things in this episode. If you're enjoying the Water Women podcast, make sure that you leave a review and rate the podcast. I love reading the reviews that you guys leave. They make me so happy and I love that you guys are enjoying this podcast as much as I'm enjoying doing it. But let's dive in and hear what Lauren has to say. Welcome back to the Water Women podcast. We are joined today with Lauren Bell, who's going to teach us all about climate change and kelp forests and all these little critters. So welcome, Lauren. Thanks, Jill. It's great to be here. I'm super excited to have you on, and I'm super excited to learn even more about your topic that you're going to be talking about today. So do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Uh, So my name is Lauren Bell. I am currently a PhD student through the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, And I am a lifetime Alaskan. I grew up in small town coastal Alaska and have kind of taken a circuitous route to where I am now. Um, And so I'm now midway through my PhD as an early 30s gal and living in Southeast Alaska in Sitka. And this is where I do all of my research out of. So you're doing your PhD out of California, but you're in Alaska. Correct. Yep. You got it. It's a little (laughs) bit confusing. And this is, this was true even before COVID. So I'm kind of, oh, so you were remote before it was cool. I was remote before it was cool. You got it. Yep. Yeah. And I kind of got to finagle a neat, uh, neat setup for myself for graduate school, which has really served me pretty well. I feel very yeah. fortunate. What made you want to be a water woman and pursue your PhD? Where did you start with this? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like early, early, early on. Um, I grew up right next to the ocean. Um, And I just remember spending long hours at the beach when I was a child. Uh, I was always drawn to the water. Spent a lot of time kayaking. I kayak guided when I was in high school in uh, where I grew up and loved the marine environment. Um, Just felt like there was so much mystery that was revealed in the area that I grew up. We had huge tidal changes. It's, I think, the second, uh, second largest tidal range in the world after, what, the the Bay of Fundy. Is that correct? Yeah, um, that's, that's where I live. Yeah, there we go. Cool. So we're connected by our title, extreme title ranges. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. And I, that was always just amazing to me that, that you got this glimpse into what was living below the surface when, when the tide changed so dramatically. Um, so that really hooked me. And I don't think I actually realized how much that was critical to me until I left Alaska and went to California for college. And I knew I liked science, but I don't think I really put my finger on what about it I liked until I was sitting in a big 300-person lecture hall learning about cell biology and going, huh, this is cool, but it doesn't really stimulate me in the way that <laughs> learning about marine science did. I wonder what's different. 
Um, and so that, that kind of clicked for me that I think, I think the water aspect and, and being on the ocean and, and really being out there and seeing the life, um, for yourself was, was really what was important to me. So, um, yeah, I guess I've always kind of been a, a water woman and now oh, I'm just long one. So, so privileged that I get to do it for work. <laughs> I love that. So what you've done some pretty cool projects to get to where you are now with your PhD, including one that was attaching cameras to squids. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, I did not really know what I was getting into. This was my undergrad research experience uh, when I was in college and I made that realization that I uh, wanted to get to the Marine lab at the college that I was working at. Um, I started working for a professor who studies squid and he doesn't just study any squid, but he studies Humboldt squid, which are also known as jumbo squid. They can, uh, get up to six feet in length. Um, and you'll find them naturally in the, uh, in the Sea of Cortez in uh, the Gulf of California and Mexico. And he, this guy I was working with, Dr. Bill Gilly, he, he's a bit of a mad, mad scientist himself. Um, but he said, hey, undergrad that's never done science before, I've got a problem and you're going to solve it. How do we attach a camera to a squid? Go. <laughs> and, and, you know, little 19 or 20 year old me was like, what? <laughs> okay, I guess, I guess I'll figure that out. Um, and we trialed a lot of different things. And uh, what we came up with eventually was uh, in order to attach this camera, and okay, mind you, this is 2009, so this is before GoPros had really taken off. So this was a National Geographic Critter Cam, is what it was called, and it was like the peak technology of the time. But it was still like six or eight inches long and like five inches wide and pretty like pretty robust camera. It was not a small thing we were trying to attach. Um, but the way we could do it, it was negative, or sorry, it was uh, neutrally buoyant. So it didn't weigh a lot, but we needed to make sure that when we attached it, that the squid could still do its squid things, which for <laughs> squid is filling its mantle with water pretty rapidly to kind of blow itself up like a balloon and then be able to squish all that water out at once through its siphon so it could move. So we couldn't restrict that. So what we figured out was if we took a child's rash guard, like top, that, you know, kind of had, mm -hmm. uh, it was like a stretchy material and we cut off the arms. So we just had this like stretchy tube. We could slide that over the mantle of the squid, over the body of the squid and have it be like a little, a little surfer rash guard on the squid and then attach the camera to that so that it was kind of held in place on the mantle. Um, but the squid could still move through the water oh and, <laughs> and it worked, which was amazing. Um, yeah. And so we got some of the first footage that scientists had seen at depth of these squid interacting with each other in big schools and like flashing different colors and, uh, like doing these really cool postures at each other and they, as they interacted. So that ended up being my, uh, my undergraduate thesis that I got to do, which was just a wild experience. <laughs> so that is first of all, super cool that as an undergrad, your first like kind of research experience was such a huge thing. Like getting some of the first footage, but also you played dress up with a squid. Totally. <laughs> totally. Unreal. Unreal. 
And, you know, I mean, part of the value of that, well, one was that that advisor trusted me that he just let me do that. I, I, I don't think every scientist would necessarily trust an undergrad with, with that kind of um, problem. So that was such a huge piece to my development as a young scientist. And also, I mean, the end of that story is that these, these critter cams are like priceless, right? They, it's, it's thousands of engineering hours that goes in from National Geographic engineers to make each of these things. And they're custom built for the animal that they are deployed on. Um, and I lost one. I was tasked with mounting it on a squid and then sending it out and then recovering them. You're supposed to recover them in order to get the data. And after we'd done a few of the deployments, uh, we sent one out. And honestly, I think I programmed it wrong or something happened and we didn't retrieve it. And oh. I was I was devastated. I thought it was the end of my scientific career. I was like, okay, well, marine biology was fun, but guess I'll never be invited back. <laughs> Um, and that same advisor was like, hey, this is what it's all about. Sometimes we throw things in the ocean and they don't come back. It's just part of the process. And so that was that, again, was huge in my in my development and and just building my confidence as a as a young scientist. I love that. I feel like it's really important to be able to work with uh, scientists and specifically like scientists above you, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, role models almost that provide you with these lessons and like confidence to do that. Like, yeah. So what you lost a piece of equipment, that's not going to ruin anything. Yeah. It's important to, to learn that things happen. And I mean, and that's part of the joy of science, right? Is that it's, it's imperfect and you have to try things multiple times before you figure it out. And it's a whole problem solving process. So, you know, if, if anyone tells you that you get it right on the first try, they're lying to you. <laughs> <laughs> or it's a fully a fluke. It is yes, completely exactly. accidental. Exactly. Like what? Didn't expect that to happen. <laughs> yeah. So from your from that squid squid project, you went on to do a master's and then your PhD. What made you want to pursue a master's and PhD? Oh man. Well, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> I I didn't really have it in mind that that's what I what I was gonna do. Um, I. I loved that research experience when I was in undergrad. I came home after college, and uh, during college, I'd actually gotten my scientific diving certification through a, a, a course, a kelp forest ecology course, um, which was fabulous, and I got into scuba diving through that course. So I came home after college and kind of knew I wanted to take a year off and travel and figure out what to do next, and I was diving in, uh, in around the, my hometown, and happened to meet a uh, scientist who worked at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and we started talking. And I think I was really interested in cephalopods and squid and octopus because of that undergraduate experience. So I said, oh, man, it would be cool if I could research octopus in, in Alaska, the giant Pacific octopus. That would be amazing. And this uh, this uh, professor at UAF said, okay, cool, that's that's really neat, and and we could definitely uh, think about that as a master's uh, program. But um, I also have funding for a research project in the Arctic that I need someone for. Is there any possibility you'd be interested in that? And and I kind of checked my my thought that I knew what I wanted to do and said, "Wow, this is an opportunity for me to explore a whole area of the world that I 
probably will never have the opportunity to explore again. So oh, yeah, okay, <laughs> I guess so. Um, so really, it was, you it can was always not- come back to like if you really, really wanted to work with octopus. There's nothing saying you can't come back to that afterwards. So absolutely, absolutely. And I think someone else even gave me that that advice too. Was was uh, you know you had that experience that you've learned a lot about cephalopods and um, you've gotten to do some really neat research in that. And why not use another opportunity to expand your knowledge area in something else? Um, so yeah, it really. The master's piece really fell into my lap in that way, um, and and I'm really happy that I took that that opportunity. Um, I had a fabulous time doing work in the Arctic. Uh, I think that after I finished that master's, it it was such a neat experience. I did a lot of cruise based research. I got to dive under the ice uh, out of Kaktovik, which is like the farthest northeast uh, town in Alaska. Um, interacted with some incredible people. It did feel after I was done with that, it it was a three and a half year master's. It was a lengthy master's. Um, And when I finished, I did feel like I was really disconnected from the research that I did um, because it took place in the Arctic and I wasn't living in the Arctic. You know, I was living in uh, coastal Alaska on the Gulf of Alaska. So really more southerly part of the state. And you know, we'd go up and fly up and get on these research vessels and do the research over a month or two and then fly back. You know, we weren't really living in that area and seeing, observing for ourselves outside of the time that we were there, what was going on. So I, I appreciated that research experience, but I, it also just left me feeling disconnected from the research that I did. And it made me realize how important it was to me to learn about the actual place that I lived. Um, and so after that, I, I moved to Southeast Alaska. I really wanted to check out Southeast Alaska um, as a as a new environment for a while. I hadn't intended on going back to school. I actually got a job uh, in Sitka, Alaska, with the Sitka Sound Science Center as a research biologist. And my goal was really just to immerse myself in a new location and learn everything I could about <laughs> about the marine life in that place. And so I started to do that. And again, I had an opportunity. I had a, my now advisor came up and started working with me. Uh, I, I helped her on some of her, her initial projects in this area. And um, she told me, you know, hey, I can see that you love this place. I want to start a research program in this place. Would you be interested in going back to school for your PhD? And you can lead this, this research here in your home. Um, and that again, wow, what an opportunity. Um, and, and, and to me that checked the boxes of, okay, I, I want to be connected to the research that I'm doing. I want it to be relevant to the community that I care about. And, and I want to see that, you know, I want to be here year round and, and observe it and see it and have it be connected in with my lifestyle, you know, as someone who fishes, as someone who hunts, um, you know, living in this place and feeling like it's not just my science being removed from myself, that it really is, you know, just part of my life <laughs> here. Um, and that that was a really cool realization to make. So yeah, yeah so that kind of drove me back, back to school and, and where I am now. I love that. So now you're working on that PhD. How mm-hmm. far along are you now? Uh, I am, I just started my fourth year. Um, so oh. I- I probably have at least two more to go. I, I finished my qualifying exam in the spring. So at this point, I have an idea of my 
chapters and I've done actually the bulk of my field work at this point. Um, so yeah, I get to now start playing with data, which is pretty fun. Ooh, I love that. So let's dive into your, your PhD a little bit. What is it that you're looking at and what are you studying? Yeah. So the lab that I work in is very interested in climate change and how it's going to impact the world's oceans. And we're interested in that from kind of a more complex perspective than uh, maybe someone who is interested in specifically how one type of urchin might respond to, say, ocean warming. Um, so this lab that I work in, we kind of integrate and say, okay, we know that urchins are going to respond in this way and uh, fish are going to respond in this way and seaweed are going to respond in this way. And what does that look like when we sum it all together? You know, how, how does that all um, affect the energy flow through the food web? How does it affect the marine ecosystem as a whole? And what does it mean to, um, to others like humans who interact with those systems? So basically the messiest kind of ecology you can do is what we're trying to get after. <laughs> and and my, uh, my interest is specific to high latitudes, so to the oceans around Alaska and how, um, how marine climate change is going to impact these coastal ecosystems that, that we, a lot of people depend on for subsistence foods, for commercial foods, um, and, and things like that. So what would make it be different at higher latitudes versus a lower latitude? Yeah, great question. So there's a lot of interest at high in uh, marine climate change at high latitudes because we experience up here what's called Arctic amplification or polar ampl amplification. You might have heard of that um, when we actually see um, warming that is occurring worldwide because of our increased um, carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere, um, that excess warming when it melts things like glaciers, like sea ice that, of course, we have a lot of in the Arctic, uh, like the snow off the trees and the boreal forests that are around the poles, when that happens, it actually causes there to be more open water, more dark trees that are um, revealed, more of that land that's under those glaciers, and that actually speeds up the warming over time. So you get this amplification of the speed of warming and the intensity of warming um, at these poles relative to um, maybe lower latitudes. So we actually get this increase in, in warming up here. And, you know, these polar areas are already so seasonally driven. We have permafrost, we have this frozen ground throughout the year, um, and towns that are built on, on these kind of structures. And so when we start amping up that temperature, we really can like physically see communities falling into the ocean because of increased coastal erosion um, and really see the impacts on, uh, again, those subsistence foods that like, uh, like salmon that really depend on colder temperatures during certain times of the year. If we're heating things up, it's really negatively affecting some of, some of these iconic species in our area. So a lot of Alaskans, a lot of people who live in other high latitude places are very concerned about climate change. Um, the other reason besides just warming that we see uh, increased um, concern over climate change at high latitudes is that colder waters in general can hold more carbon dioxide gas. And so that actually leads to, um, to ocean acidification being potentially more severe up in these waters. So we are kind of in a more vulnerable state at this stage. And it's a really interesting area to look right now at how those things are happening 
um, and, you know, can kind of be a canary for some of the lower latitudes and, and changes that might be expected in the future there. Oh, cool. So like you're basically kind of, it's almost that it's in a, like a fast forward, like you're seeing yeah. everything a little bit more and a little bit faster up there. Yep, totally. We are the lucky ones. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so lucky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but it's also it's also a neat place to do this kind of research because again, you know, a lot of people depend on these these resources. So there is a lot of concern. Um and and people are paying attention. And so, you know, it's not like it's just happening under the radar. There there is a lot of alarm that's going up uh throughout the state and I know other places around the world at high latitudes of, of people wanting to know you know, what, what's going on here. So there, there's a big push for this science right now. Good. As there should be. <laughs> so you're looking at kelp forests. Why, mm-hmm. what's the impact on them? That's so significant. And how does, how do they tie into these little lower trophic level, little critters? How do they work together? Yeah. So yeah, my, my interest in particular is around the seaweeds. I've become a total seaweed nerd. Um, and the reason that I'm interested in seaweeds and, and in kelp forests are that they are kind of the like coastal productive engines that that you see. Um, They are the nursery habitats for a lot of important species. So the big kelp forests that that you see, you can actually see from from land. I can see them from where I'm sitting right now in my house where I'm talking to you. Um, (laughs) You you can see the kelp across the surface and it's making this beautiful 3D structure um, down through the water column. And that's really important to juvenile fish, um, to a lot of invertebrates, the, the urchins, the abalone, a lot of those things um, really depend on that, that structure and the food source that comes from the kelp and the other seaweed. So they're kind of like this big nursery system coastally um, for all the big megafauna that then eventually, you know, go out and, and have uh, longer migrations uh, elsewhere in, uh, in the ocean. So they're kind of a cool place to look at some of these changes. And I think they're neat because they are relatively more accessible. You know, sometimes it can be pretty daunting to look at the ocean and think of it as like this big pool that is hard to access. Um, But often kelp forests are only existing, especially up here in Alaska at 40 feet or shallower um, in in ocean depth. And so we can actually get on scuba and and go down and visit them and check them out and, and see what's happening over time. Cool. Yeah. That's super cool. So you're looking specifically just at these seaweeds and then are you tying those back to the lower trophic levels at all? Like how are they interacting like that? Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, so the seaweeds are kind of where we start and looking at uh, at climate change impacts on on the seaweeds. And then from there, like I said, because my lab is interested in, okay, we start at the bottom and then how does that scale up through the food web? Then we say, okay, let's say these seaweeds are going to be affected by climate change. Maybe their nutritional quality changes. Well, what does that mean for a abalone or an urchin in the future that uh, that is also stressed out just on its own from sitting in acidic waters or sitting in warmer waters? You know, is it going to now need more food in order to handle the stress that it's dealing with. And oh no, the seaweed isn't as nutritionally. Yeah. So are we going to see a compounding of effect there? Or alternatively, seaweed are just like any other plants on land. They use CO2, carbon dioxide, to 
uh, make their sugars through photosynthesis. So there's some research that's showing that if we're adding carbon dioxide to the water and increasing that ocean acidification, the seaweeds might actually benefit. So we might actually see greater productivity of seaweeds in the future. And maybe that greater food source is going to be good for the things that are needing more energy to deal with the stress of this future change. So, you know, it could be a, a good story in the end. Um, and that's kind of part of what, what I'm interested in is how are these different, uh, these different levels of the food web going to interact? Wow, that's really cool. And kind of looking at how you're going to get a lot of this, like how they interact with one another and how Mm-hmm. That's going to be a very complex thing. I'm really excited to see where that goes. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty fun. And so the other piece of this that I think is really interesting is that kelp forests and uh, seagrass beds have all been uh, considered to be possible refuge zones in the future because they are pulling down that carbon dioxide that's in the water as they're photosynthesizing. There's some folks that are thinking, hey, in the future, these beds might be great places where ocean acidification isn't as intense. And so there's a lot of interest in like these uh, kelp forest habitats as a refuge for different marine animals. And for Pacific herring, which is a really important subsistence food here in Southeast Alaska, um, I'm kind of curious about that effect. So I've also looked at the interaction between a fish, herring, and its habitat, kelp, in future oceans. And whether, you know, herring eggs that are laid on giant kelp uh, may actually be more protected from some of the negative effects of climate change just by being associated with this seaweed ecosystem. So there's some really cool... Uh, interactive effects, I think, that go go beyond just the food piece. You know, the habitat piece is important too, and that's that's kind of what I'm interested in. That's super cool. I wish I had like more words to explain how cool I think that is. <laughs> <laughs> that's like really interesting. It's fun stuff, and and you know, I I think it's really fun work because um, not only do uh, I get to go diving in in the kelp forest for part of my job, but I also get to run these pretty neat experiments where we have a big lab setup where we can change the temperature of the water, we can bubble in carbon dioxide and simulate what the future ocean is going to look like and play with things like that. Um, and when I build help build those systems, I'm learning plumbing, I'm learning electricity or and how to how to uh, wire things. I'm learning a lot of software and hardware programming and you know, all of these different engineering pieces beyond just the science piece. So to me, it's super cool because it's stimulating all pieces of my brain <laughs> when I'm doing these this kind of work. So it's a lot of fun. That's actually a great segue to talk about what a typical, I know there's no such thing as a typical day. I get that same answer every time. <laughs> but what a day looks like for you if you're out in the field or in, if you're in the lab, what are you kind of doing? What does it look like for you and how are you yeah. doing it? Oh, man. Yeah. No typical day. Well, um, <laughs> I can tell you <laughs> this summer. So we just finished up our uh, our field season. Um, so all summer, usually running, running experiments and uh, doing a lot of dive work and everything like that. So often, if the weather's cooperating here in Sitka Sound, I will get up and uh, head down to the lab to get prepared to go out diving. So 
um, get on all of the gear for here to go under the water for any extended amount of time. You have to wear a dry suit. So layer up within that. I, I uh, wear lots of layers of long underwear and my big uh, one piece kind of snowsuit looking thing and then get my dry suit on. And we are so fortunate here in, in Sitka that um, we can just launch the boat, you know, five minutes from the lab. So trailer the boat over, launch it, jump in. And just in a little Zodiac uh, skiff that can drive out to one of our four sites in, in uh, Sitka Sound. Usually takes about 20 minutes. And then we'll drop down underwater. Um, we go, we, our dives are about an hour at a time. And um, during that time, we could be doing any number of different things, but often it involves some kind of community survey. So we're dropping down and we're seeing what's there and we're counting and measuring and and, uh, and kind of seeing what, what the life looks like at a certain time, time of year. We also have um, these really cool sensors that we have deployed underwater that um, monitor pH and temperature and salinity and all these different things that kind of tell us what the water is doing at any given time. So I will go and, and service those and make sure that they're recording the way they should. And I might repeat a those kind of dives a couple times over the course of a day until I get really cold. <laughs> and because uh, even though you're wearing a dry suit, it seeps right in over time. Um, and then we'll head back in and maybe we will have collected some algae uh, to look at different things. Um, so maybe I'll take that cooler of, of seaweed and take it back to the lab and spend a couple hours processing it. Um, for analysis of maybe its nutritional content or or its chemical defenses is another thing that I'm interested in, and uh, and yeah, and then usually by the end of end of a dive day, we have to log our dives and uh, catch up on some of the paperwork that's re required for that, and then yeah, I after a dive day, that's usually it. I settle down, I have a hot drink, and I go to sleep early. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a long day. Don't say that's it. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> so that's that's a lot of this summer that we just got to. And now now I feel like I'm transitioning a lot different. I um, have now transitioned into more of teaching for this fall. And so I get to teach and uh, start doing a lot of data analysis. So I get to take all the information that we collected for the summer and start looking at it. So how does the community look in the summer versus the winter? Um, what are some of the changes that we're seeing over years at a time in these kelp forest communities and, and looking at all that, which I think is really neat. That is super cool. So do you, obviously, I feel like you might prefer the, the field versus the lab. I'm sure the lab is cool, but the field work when you're getting to dive all the time yeah, is so cool. Is it that obvious? Yeah. <laughs> I actually, so when you sent me your proposal to watch, one of the things that I thought was, thought was absolutely like just mind blowing and so cool. And like, it makes total sense and it's such a little thing but you guys are measuring the growth rate and you do that just by punching a hole in the stem and measuring from that oh my gosh it is the coolest coolest thing <laughs> I mean, it makes so much sense when you actually like sit down and think about it but like just when I was like watching that I was like oh my god that is so cool that like that you can just hole punch this and that's how you can measure its growth I'm so glad that you that you found joy in that too, because I think I think some of the, you know, maybe quote unquote simplest ecological questions are some of the coolest to look at. And and that is a neat thing about working where I work up here in coastal Alaska. There just hasn't 
been very much research up here. So a lot of these basic questions like how fast does this seaweed grow haven't been answered. Um, so yeah, that's a really fun one. I have gone out, I call them my seaweed friends because I basically picked a whole bunch of individual seaweed blades that I wanted to follow for a year. And I put a little number tag on them. And then, yeah, the way they grow is they grow from where kind of what you think of as like a stem hitting the leaf on, on a uh, land plant. Uh, their stipe is what their stem-like structure is called, hits their blade, and that's where new growth gets pushed out. So I can actually punch a hole in the blade, and then over time, more tissue is added below that, and I can then go back and measure how far that hole has traveled in order to see how much it grows. And it's so satisfying to go to go down, drop down underwater, find my friends, you know, see who they are, and then uh, measure how much they've grown and just, you know, give them a little pat and say, good job. You're growing a lot right now. <laughs> so no, yeah, I think fun. that's amazing. And the fact that you can put little like numbered tags on them and then they'll just, they'll just stay there. Yep. So like what? <laughs> the most wonderful part of working with seaweed for sure. <laughs> it won't go anywhere. <laughs> Man, you're making seaweed actually sound kind of exciting. What the heck? Yeah. Dude, um, told me hey. that I would say that, but... It is my goal to convert more people into becoming seaweed nerds. They are really cool. Seaweeder and hey, they're the base of the food chain in, in the coastal coastal area. So you got to love algae. <laughs> Listen, I like dulse. I'll, I'll eat a lot of dulse. There you go. Hey, and that's part of it. I, I love eating seaweed. I've gotten really into making my own furikake. There's so many types that people can eat. I don't, I don't think that there's enough recognition of how good seaweed is. And especially if you live in an area where you can collect it, it, it is an awesome source of nutrition and even just having it on your spice cabinet is kind of cool. So You know what? I'm genuinely going to mail you a bag of Graham and Andalts because I am convinced that there's nothing better than Graham and Andalts. Like I've tried other seaweeds. I've tried other adults. Nothing better. So I'll send oh, you a man. bag of it. We should do a little seaweed exchange. I like that idea. Oh my God. I love that idea. <laughs> coast to coast. <laughs> West coast, best coast or East coast. Yeah. So this doesn't rhyme with anything. So it's not yeah. cool. But, you know. <laughs> I love it. Um, so you do a lot of, you do some educational and community outreach too, especially living in, you mentioned like small town, Alaska. How do you, how do you do that? This outreach? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I feel really fortunate because the, the town, the community that I live in is, is like I said before, very connected to the ocean. Um, so to be honest, I feel like I don't even have to really make an effort to do a lot of the outreach that I do. Um, there is already a lot of interest. And I love that. I love that I can walk into a coffee shop in town and someone says, hey, Lauren, I pulled up this thing on my fishing boat the other day. Can you take a look at it? Or, hey, have you heard about, you know, that plankton bloom that's happening and everyone's seeing what's going on there? Um, I think that there's a lot of curiosity and that that just, again, just feels so integrated into the work that I do. Um, in terms of, of really sharing the kind of research that, that I'm interested in, um, I, I make a point to try and uh, give little talks or go put myself out there and, uh, and, step in on some meetings that uh, are relevant around town um, and kind of push my comfort zone in terms of, of sharing what, what I'm finding. Um, it's neat. I get to work with a couple of the, um, the science centers in, in town that allow me to go into some of the classrooms around and 
uh, share some of the work that I've done. And we've come up with some neat little uh, multi-day lesson plans where I actually get to bring urchins and snails and abalone into the classroom for students. Um, and we do little feeding studies. So I'll bring them a bunch of kelp. They'll cut out little kelp um, cutouts and weigh their uh, their consumer, their little urchin, and then basically leave them in a container with the with the algae food source and see how much they eat over time. And then we can compare, do they eat more at different temperatures? What does that mean for the future? Um, so we do really fun little hands-on activities a lot, which I love. And um, yeah, even getting out into the, into the intertidal with groups. Oh, we did a really fun one. That was artistry with algae, where we ah, cool. did like a did like a little mini lesson on on seaweed biology, and then we all walked out into the intertidal together, collected the different algae that we liked, and then came back and did algae pressings and made like cards and bookmarks and everything with them, and kind of explored the beauty of of these different seaweeds. So, yeah, I I love that I get to share share everything about the marine world that I adore with people here and most people are, are very interested. I think the the bigger challenge for me is is making sure that I I reach out and share what I'm finding with communities outside of where I live. Um, because I think that it is important for people who maybe don't live right on the coast to know what's happening out here because the oceans affect everybody. Um, so that's that's something that I have constantly been working on. I've actually I've actually recently started to do a little more social media stuff, and that has been pretty pretty fun to get a response from folks um, who are seeing my Instagram posts of you know diving in Sitka Sound when you can't see a foot in front of your face or <laughs> sharing sharing the dorky uh, lab work that I'm doing um, that people find it interesting. So I think it's cool. It's neat that there's curiosity around it and. I love, I, I, I adore science. I adore that it's a curiosity driven endeavor. And I like sharing that enthusiasm with everybody. So I feel like it's a lifelong challenge for me to just get better at communicating <laughs> all the time. I love but, it. I love that you said something like that, that uh, science is curiosity driven because it hundred percent is. I've said it once. I'll say it a million times. The second you ask a question and look for an answer, you are a scientist. That's all totally. it takes. Absolutely. And I, I hope that, yeah, I hope we don't lose sight of that because I, I want I want people to know that from, from a young age, that anytime you're curious about something and you just want to know, yeah, you're a scientist. That's what it's all about is, is learning more about our environment and being able to appreciate it that much more. Um, I, I think that's the beauty in, in what we get to do. It's pretty cool. I also love that. I hope you've shared it on social media somewhere because I saw it in your proposal the contrast of the pictures of you diving in different times of year, one when there's high nutrients in the water and one when there's mm -hmm. low nutrients and the stark differences between them is absolutely insane. Totally. Like in one of them, you can barely see. And then the other one, it's like, I literally was, I was like, are you sure that's not like down South? Like what? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, this is a, Sitka is a world-class place to dive in the winter because the visibility is just limitless because there's nothing growing in the water column, right? There's no algae blooms. Um, there's just not enough sunlight in the wintertime. So it's crystal clear waters and it is gorgeous. And then you come back in the middle of summer and you can't see your hand in front of your face like a foot away. So um, it's still so beautiful. What makes that difference? What's, <laughs> what's causing that? 
It is, it's really tied to, like you said, the nutrients that are in the water and then the long summer days. So as soon as that, the day lengths increase in the springtime, and we've actually had up here, we have high nutrients in the winter, um, but you kind of have to get that perfect hit of enough sunlight and nutrients in the water, and then it kicks off these big blooms of algae, and most of it is phytoplankton, so the microscopic algae that lives in the water column. Um, and they, when they bloom and they turn the water green, it just makes the visibility go away. But that's like the signal of a whole bunch of food that is showing up in the springtime. So then you see all the fish come in and you see the humpback whales come in and you see the sea lions come in. It's like a feeding frenzy um, in the springtime here. It's like the everything is awoken from its winter slumber. So the visibility goes down, but the trade-off is that it's like, okay, here's life again. <laughs> and the ocean comes alive. It's pretty cool. That's so insane that it can be such drastic differences in such a little amount of time. Oh yeah. Like overnight. <laughs> it's insane. it's pretty wild. I love that. Yeah. So you mentioned you some outreach to reach out to people uh, in, in places that you are not. So anywhere's but Alaska. Do you do mm -hmm. that on social media? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have, uh, I have an Instagram that people can follow me on uh, at lowbell underscore AK. Um, and, and I also share on my Facebook. Um, yeah. And I've done a lot of uh, outreach stuff through my lab. So when I do go down to Santa Cruz, um, I can kind of capitalize on um, on their connections down there to, to connect with people. And then, um, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and, and doing platforms like this. I've, I've um, talked to a couple folks that have been able to share some of my, my work um, online that people can, can access um, me talking about research and nerding out about seaweed in various ways. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that's kind of the gamut of, of, of things that I've gotten to do. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and teaching me all about seaweed and making seaweed super cool. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to get to talk to you, Jill. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Water and Women podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe to it. You can also follow us on all of our social medias. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also find more behind-the-scenes info on our website, waterwomenpodcast.ca. I am so happy to keep sharing these stories of different water women each week with you. And until next week, stay salty.